All right, if you have your Bible, we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 today. 11 and 12. Anybody getting sick of the longest sentence in history? (laughs) You wouldn't tell me if you were. Um, We're finishing, we're getting close to finishing it, but that only means we're halfway through a chapter that's taken us six weeks to teach, so you do the math. Ephesians 1, 11 to 12. Let's read this together. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I used to uh, teach student ministries for years and years. And uh, from time to time we'd play a game. And the game was called the what if game. So let's just humor me. Let's play the what if game for a second this morning. What if this week, Wednesday, you open the mail and you have a letter from a relative and it starts, it starts with the first seven words in verse 11. In him, you have an inheritance. What would you, what would you think? What would you do? You'd freak out just like I would. Who, who, Uncle Charlie, did he die? What do I get? What do I have? Is it the condo in California? Is it the amount of money? Will I pay off debt? Will I kind of retire? I mean, you'd go down all the so what's to someone said to you, hey, you, you, you've got an inheritance. I think we all would. Or you'd be pessimistic like, like some people I know, and that would never happen to me. Stuff like that doesn't happen to me. Everything that we've been looking at for weeks now is Paul telling about our inheritance. In fact, look at verse three. This is the way he describes it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our goal today in verses 11 and 12 is to deal with what I think is an amazing inheritance that Paul is overwhelmed with. But there are some preliminary things we need to do or answer at least in the text as far as I'm concerned. They might seem like minutiae, but I think they have value, so I'm gonna say them. There's a couple things I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to notice the use of pronouns in verse 11 and 12 versus 13. Because in 11 and 12, he talks about we, himself personally, and someone personally to him who have attained this inheritance. And later in verse 13, the beginning of the verse, he says, in him you also. So he chooses different sets of pronouns here. So what, what is he possibly doing? Well, here's what Paul is talking about. In verse 12, he says, we were the first to hope in Christ. He's not talking about the first converts to Christianity. He is talking, as Charles Hodge would say, Jews who before the Gentiles had a Messiah as the object of their hopes. They look forward to one coming. So when you read the narrative of Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had to look forward to some kind of provision. Believing Jews who look forward to the Messiah as a grace-given righteousness. That's what, that's what Paul's talking about here. And in verse 13, he somehow now includes, and you too, you also have this wonderful inheritance. And we've spent the last several weeks going through line by line of all the things we have. We mentioned last week that we have this election, we have these blessings, we have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We have all these wonderful things in Christ. So the question should pop in your head, why does it matter then? Why would Paul bring up the us or the we and then the you? Why the different pronouns if everyone's jumping in on all the same blessings? Well, I think there's two predominant, like, encouragements here for us in the differences. I think number one, he's setting up a future discussion about the gospel restorative power that will include restoring Gentiles and Jews together. 
there is huge division in that culture just like there is in our culture. There, there is divisions of all sorts of kinds in creeds and yet the gospel seems to pull people together. It brings things together. In fact, we're gonna start in chapter two, the middle of that chapter, through the middle of chapter three, dealing with that very, that very thing that God breaks down through Christ, breaks down the things that divide us to bring Jew and Gentile together. The second thing I think is interesting about why he separates the we and the you in this thing is I think he's weaving a tapestry of God's work for the glory of God's name. I mean, just think about it this way. In just talking about the we who had to believe for something to happen versus the you who had to believe in something that did happen means that God is telling his story of redemption over the entire course of history. You pick up chapter 11 of Hebrews and you see the hall of fame of faith and all these people who before the cross, before Christ had to believe in a righteousness provided by Jesus in advance. That's amazing. And yet I don't, I was never at the cross and I have to look back. Both of us are looking at different directions to see the wonderful story of salvation for sinners. It's, it's telling a great story of God's redemptive work. You see? So that's why I think he includes the, the differences between we who were the first to hope and you also. The second thing I want you to notice in this text is the phrase obtain an inheritance in verse 11. In the original language, it's only one word. It's why um, it actually means a point by lot. It's why the NIV translates it, we were, we were chosen. Now, you might consider this more a pastoral or theological discussion and it's not valuable, but I, I think it's valuable at least to note what he's doing here. The reason why there's so much... Uh, I guess differing opinions on what he means by this, this phrase is because both interpretations are biblically true. <laughs> so again, uh, one interpretation would be that what Paul is talking about here is that we are God's inheritance. Like we are God's portion. And clearly the Bible teaches that. Jesus taught it in John 6 and John 10. We see it also in, in, uh, in, in other passages of Scripture, specifically in verse 18, where Paul in this passage even says that we are his glorious inheritance in the saints. His. So we are his portion. The other writers would suggest, no, what he's talking about is that we have an inheritance. Not, not that we are his, but we have our inheritance in Christ. First Peter, for instance, says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. So clearly the Bible teaches both, that not only are we his portion, not only are we in his inheritance, but we receive an inheritance, okay? And both of those interpretations are, are biblically true. But I think in the context of what Paul's saying here, overwhelming us with the blessings that are ours in Christ, he's just continuing the thought of your inheritance. What you and I can count on because of what Christ has done. He says, in essence, uh, our inheritance in verse 14 is something to take hold of. So guess what, church? We don't have to play what if when it comes to the inheritance. Paul's telling us what is ours in Christ. It's crystal clear. In him, this is his words, in him we have, period. All right, that's how he starts this. This is what we have, obtained an inheritance. So we, we have seen this since the beginning of this long run-on sentence, these wonderful, unbelievable things called election and redemption and forgiveness and grace and wisdom and understanding, all of ours in Christ Jesus but we have also said to you over and over again for years now that when it comes to these wonderful things that are ours, there's this already but not yet aspect reality to what we have. 
right? And if, if I was teaching through both verse 11 all the way to verse 14, we'd be able to deal with it. But I have to mention it because you're going to think I'm crazy if I don't say it now. Because in verse 14, he talks about an inheritance that someday we'll get. So he talks about it present tense in verse 11, and he talks about it in a future tense in verse 14. So you might say, well, which is it? Do I have it or not? Is it mine or not? Yes, already, but not yet. That, that's the reality of it. Let me try to explain it this way. It is, a, it is a blessing that is truly ours today, according to Paul, that we have obtained an inheritance, but it will be perfected and it will overflow even more later. That's the picture that he's painting. In fact, in verses 13, 14, if we just read it, it don't make sense. In him, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, get this, of our inheritance until, until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. The, the idea of sealing was how a king would make something his own and protect something that belonged to him. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteed of our inheritance. There's this idea of down payment. That's what the word guarantee means. We were, there's a down payment for our future ultimate blessing that we have even today. And this, according to verse 14, we haven't yet fully realized all of it. So if you get the big picture of Paul's talking about, he is just saying, listen, you're gonna, you have it now, but it'll get even better. In fact, the word that was best used is like you have a foretaste now. So, so my, my favorite holiday is Thanksgiving for all the obvious reasons. Food and football, right? Um, wonderful, wonderful. But Thanksgiving is so much more than just the moment whenever you gather around the table. You know, my wife does a great job, sets the table. I, I know we have a dining table every Thanksgiving. We set it, right? And there's a tablecloth and all these fancy dishes that show up at Thanksgiving. But Thanksgiving for me starts early in the morning. And, and guys, tell me if you, you agree with this. In the morning, she gets up before I get up, and I can smell it in the house. There's a turkey in the oven, right? And it's just wafting through the house. All these dishes that are trying to crowd for space in the oven are everywhere. And guess what I do? I kind of mosey into the kitchen from time to time. I pick a little and pick a little and pick a little. It's wonderful. The whole thing's a great experience, but it's nothing like the meal. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. You have an inheritance. You can smell it in the air, man. You can even nibble on it. It's awesome. But there's a meal coming. It's going to even be better. You'll be overwhelmed with what it is. And so if you picture what Paul is saying, he's enthused, really enthused about all of our blessings. But he has in mind what we have now with a look to its perfected state later. Make sense? So that's what he's doing here. That's the thought that he has. Now, I can't wait for that day. Um, I hope you can't either. You'll figure this out one day. One, one day you'll respond to things, but it's okay. What is the most common word in our church or in our culture to describe us? What's the name? What's the title? That wasn't the word I'm looking for, but church is true. Christian, right? Do you realize that Christian is only used three times in Scripture? Do you realize in Acts twice and 1 Peter once, only time? that there is a more pronounced, more um, significant description of who we are than any other. In fact, Paul uses it 164 times just in his writings alone. It's the first two words of our text, in him. That's how the apostle decides to describe us. What are you? I'm in him. 
That's what I am. I'm in him. That's, that's how he chooses to, to present it to us. Now, uh, Paul, the pastor, a couple weeks ago did a great job of talking about what it meant to be in Christ. Let me remind you of some of the things he said. He said that was us to be in Christ was when our lives, past, present, and future, are inseparably joined to Christ, past, present, and future. Remember that? That's when you are in Christ. When um, we are so tied to Jesus that it creates a new man and a new identity. He died, I died. He rose, I rose. He lives, I live. The way he works out his life is the way I work out my life. Who he loves is who I love and how I love. That's the depiction that he painted for us. John Stott said it this way, to be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a box or clothes in a closet, but to be organically united to Christ as a limb is to the body or a branch to a tree. It's the personal relationship with Christ. What distinguishes the true followers of Jesus is neither their creed, nor their code of ethics, nor their ceremonies, nor their culture, but Christ. That's what makes us. Christians, we're in him. We, all our source of strength, our salvation is in him. And that is what Paul says is the reason why we obtained an inheritance, because we're in Christ. In other words, everything Christ offers is inseparably linked to our being in Christ. And nothing that he offers is yours without him. And that's a really important distinction because everybody lines up for blessing and they don't want Jesus. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? I want to feel better about myself because I screw up all the time. God, give me forgiveness and then get out of the way. It's the classic prodigal son thing. Give me all the inheritance and then get out of my life. And so everyone wants to come to the blessing but not come to the Savior. So you understand why this is important, right? In him. You can't separate the blessings from in him. In him you have an inheritance. And only in him. Now, if I got a letter on Wednesday that said... In him, I have an inheritance. The next question I would ask is, what? What's mine? Let's, let's discover what's ours. I'm gonna give you six things that we have in Christ. Some are explicit, some are implied. Either way, they're true. Number one, an amazing salvation. An amazing salvation. Nothing about every spiritual blessing that Paul talks about in this sentence can be understood whatsoever without a view through our sin. I know that we don't like the trip, we don't like to go there, we don't like to linger there, but you will know nothing of all the blessings you have in Christ unless you stop and soak in who you are without Jesus. You have to look through your sin. Do you realize what you are without Christ, church? Do you really? Remember last week I made you, we made a promise to each other that we're gonna let the word of God be the authority about these subjects? And I know we live in a culture that does not approve of this and does not agree with this because they spend, they, people who don't know Christ, spend most of their time excusing their behavior or blaming it on other people. And yet the reality of the scriptures and the reality of our condition is that we have the issue. The Bible's clear. The result of the rebellion of Adam in chapter three messed everything up. Every part of man from that point on, his mind, his will, his emotions, his flesh have been corrupted by sin. It affects who we are and what we do and why we do it. That's how bad sin is. 
Everything is tainted by sin. The prophet Isaiah, in describing how bad it got, said the best that you can do, your righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. Compare the best that you can pull off to the standard of God's righteousness and you look like filthy rags. We sin because we're sinners, because we have a sinful nature. Theologians use the phrase totally depraved, and this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could possibly be, meaning you've committed every crime that there is known to man. It simply means that you're totally tainted by sin. This is the Bible and how it refers to our condition. Let me just overwhelm you with a few of the statements that we are born dead in sin, that we are imprisoned by sin, that we, in our sin, love the darkness, that we can't understand the things of God. We suppress the truth in our sin. We reject the truth. The gospel is foolishness. We're at war with God and we won't submit to him. That's who we are. That's, the, that's who we are, the best of us. If we don't stop for a second and stare at this and stay here for a while to soak in our need, then we won't ever understand and appreciate what he provides. If you don't know really your need, you won't appreciate his offering. A salvation, and these are just a few words that popped in my mind, a salvation that the Bible and the gospel talks about that is a salvation from perpetual sin. Apart from Christ, apart from saving work, you can't do anything good. And in Christ, guess what happens? Things start happening out of your life good works, the scriptures call it. Things for the glory of God that never happened before. Instead of being perpetually stuck in serving yourself, suddenly you're open to serving God. They're saved from this perpetual sin. Saved from unending guilt. Paul talks about Romans 8, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine? Not a single charge against God's elect, not one. And yet the number one tool that Satan uses against God's elect is called guilt. And he says that God will remember and then God will use it against you. It's not true. We're saved from that. We're saved from the unending guilt. We're saved from this continued harm that we perpetrate in ourselves and other people. We can't get out of our own way. We just are just wounding warriors. We just go out there and hurt people and ourselves. We're saved from everlasting punishment. We're saved from a hopeless existence and from alienation from God, to name a few. In him, we have an amazing salvation. Let me add to that. Here's the second thing we have in him, radical transformation. Again, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter five, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I got a really good lesson on new life the other day. My uh, son, Jesse, and my daughter, Lauren, are having a little baby girl. Two baby girls, all right? So this is gonna be another new for me. But I got sent on my phone pictures of a 3D, like, you know, in the womb kind of picture. I saw her face. I saw her eyes and her jaw and her nose. It was like a family portrait, okay? <laughs> How do they do this? When we did ultrasound, it looked like milk spelt on black paper. What is that? Is that a baby? I'll take your word for it. It's a baby. I have no idea what this is. It looks like a person. You can put it on the counter. It was that kind of important. New life blows me away. And new life always looks like new life. In Christ, you and I have radical transformation. There's a change that happens that Christ brings to his people that is so profound that the only way God saw fit to describe it is to say that life has begun all over again. That's the change of new life. 
when God opens eyes, they really see. When God changes people's heart, they really beat. We're not the same. Are we perfect? No. But we're changed. God didn't just clean up the old you and give you some instructions and pat you on the back and say, go out there and try harder. That's not how this gospel works. God created something entirely new, something so new that the old things, as he describes it, have passed away. All the self stuff, gone. Right? Self-love, self-righteousness, self-promotion, and self-justification, by the way, which is the rules of the road for those who aren't in Christ. It's all you got. Self. The new us doesn't look inside anymore. It looks outside to Christ. New affections, new feelings, new desires, and new understandings. Every believer here at one time hated God and expressed it by sinful self-absorption. And now, not so much. In its essence, what every believer cries in his heart is I love him and I hate my sin. Welcome to radical transformation. Because you would have never said that. You have never felt that. Even when you wander. Even if you walked away this week and did the same stupid stuff you've done a thousand times before. When you're all done, you go, I am miserable. I hate that. No way you knew that before without radical transformation. And no way could you say, I want him. I don't want that without radical transformation. It's amazing what he's done. We live in a world that's completely stuck on the opposite direction where the powerful and the successful and the take-no-prisoner kind of people and leaders and businessmen are the kind of people we promote. Like, look at them, they're, they're wonderful. But Jesus, in the very first and most greatest sermon ever preached, started the whole concept of what it is to be in him in a radically different way. And he said, blessed and happy are those who are broken. And happy are those who are small and meek. Welcome to the description of the new you. Small and broken, and happy are you. That's what he says. Who, who would sign up for that? People with new hearts. People who've been changed on the inside. People who can finally see and feel and know God, right? So our inheritance is radical transformation. Let me add to that. In him we have inseparable union. I, I've already talked about what it means about our union in Christ, but let me add to the concept of that inseparable union. Our inheritance includes his church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, inseparably joined together. Just so you know that in spite of the great American religious myth that your relationship with God is exclusive, private, and personal, the Bible knows nothing of that. It's impossible to belong to Jesus without simultaneously belonging to the saints. That's what the Bible knows. Belonging to each other. Every believer here, young and old, belong to what the Bible calls a new community. And we get to see this, and we're going to spend a long time in this in the next two chapters. A new community not based on race or, or national boundaries or class or sex or politics. We're gonna figure out, or age, we're gonna figure out that God is making one new man, one new group of men and women. Paul said in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ. We'll get to it, I won't read it today, but Ephesians 2, 11 through 19 is a great read if you wanna understand how amazing that is, that we are now, as Paul says, brought into the household, the family of God. We're joined together as saints and members of this one household. 
part of every spiritual blessing is our belonging to his church. Can I get an amen? Good. Let me add to your little list. In him we have number four, ultimate satisfaction. Ultimate satisfaction. Verse 12 in Paul talking about in him we have attained inheritance. He ends that section in, in verse 12 talking about the first to hope in Christ. Hope in Christ has two kind of thoughts in mind. One is a certain expectation of something to come and a certain supply for now. Hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. There's a wonderful lesson that Jesus taught. In John chapter six, I know you all know this story. He has just uh, been out in the wilderness teaching the multitudes and they're hungry and he decides they need to eat and he takes what they can find. They takes five uh, loaves of bread and two small fish and he does a miracle and multiplies that into, the text says, feeding 5,000 men. Many writers would suggest that just counted the men, not the women and the children. So let's just pretend thousands and thousands of people are there being fed. And the text says it wasn't just a sampling of bread and fish than enough to have a feast and have lots left over. It's a big deal. Their bellies were filled with a meal that Jesus provided. But as great as that day was, what do you think the next day was like? They were hungry again. Great feast, great bread, great fellowship, but I'm starving, what's to eat? And Jesus took that moment to illustrate the anxious, restless soul of men. And he said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Ultimate satisfaction. Can you imagine? Like, let's just change those words, as Jesus is intending here, from physical appetite and physical thirst to spiritual appetite and spiritual thirst. Can you imagine? Never thirsty again? Never hungry again? Uh, There's a couple things that come to my mind about my life before Christ. I think I'll just say it for us, our lives before Christ when it comes to this. That we have a never-ending thirst. That's what my life was like. But here's the other sad news, right? With very limited supply. I'm just thirsty. I'm just, I really am thirsty. You know, the, the scriptures kind of provide for us an answer and writers have described this condition. Uh, there's this void. There's this God-shaped void in your life. You were meant to know the creator who made you, to walk in intimacy with him and yet you're blind and you're dead and you're unresponsive and you're on your own and there's this longing, there's this angst in your soul and you're trying to fill it up. It just feels like something. I gotta fill it up. And all of us know that, but here's the reality of it. Also, it's never enough. Whatever I try to put in there, it doesn't ever fill it. It's like the meal of bread and fish before Jesus. The second thing that I think is true about our lives before Christ, and that is we all have an ultimate thirst, but we only have superficial options without Jesus. I'll try relationship, or I'll try success, I'll try power. I'll try independence, just plug it in. There is a ultimate thirst and all we have are puny options. Someone once said it this way, that God, he is the abundant fountain for all goods. 
The psalmist said it like this. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In him we have ultimate satisfaction. Part of your inheritance is no more wandering. No more confusion. No more angsty. Am I missing out what I could get to fill it up? You know what it is. Even though sometimes you wander off the reservation, you know where your peace is. You know where your joy is, right? Here's another thing we have in him, in our inheritance. A confident assurance. A confident assurance. Why do you think it is that Paul is so persistent in instructing the church in Ephesus and now us some couple thousand years later about the issue of election and predestination. Why do you think he's hammering it? Because he is. Verse four, he chose us. Verse five, he predestined us. Verse 11, he predestined us. Verses eight and nine of chapter two, he talks about that saved not by our works, but by his work alone. He's making a case in two chapters to bury us under the sovereign lordship of Christ in our salvation. What do you, is this just a hobby horse? Like a theological interest of Paul? He's just gonna keep coming? What do you think he's doing? Why, why do you think he keeps coming back to this issue? And to some of us, it's new information. To some of us, it's troubling information. What's his point? Why would he repeat himself so often? Okay, I'll give you the grand picture, and then I'll get you to the more intimate picture. The grand picture is all for the glory of God. He's trying to push everything to his glory. Let me tell you about what God does, all to his glory. But beyond that, the main reason, let me tell you what I think is Paul's thoughts it is the assurance of the saints. It's you. It's me. It's what life does to us. It's what the sinful remaining tendencies do to our confidence in Christ over time. And so he says, hey, you've been chosen by him. It had nothing to do with you. Stop freaking out. Rest. What would anchor the confidence in our hearts more than knowing that our salvation rests in God's eternal immovable plan purpose and that in no way, shape, or form it rests on anything in us. What would anchor confidence like that? This salvation of ours isn't a man-God cooperation. We didn't meet in the middle. You know that, right? This is not a business transaction. God didn't come here and do some faithful work and I did my equal faithful work and we shook hands in the middle and agreed on salvation. That's not salvation. Salvation belongs to God. It's his story. You're the recipient of grace and be happy. Don't fight for ownership. It belongs to him. Why are we saved? Why are we assured? Because it's anchored to him. He cannot fail, not in his purpose, not in his will, not in his work, not in his plans, not in his promise. He cannot fail in anything he intends to do. And here's my confession. You might be better than me. I can't make it out of this room without failing. If my salvation depended on my faithfulness or my commitment or my understanding or my intentions, I might as well just go right straight to punishment because I can't. And I'm not going to be too judgmental, but neither can you. You can't do it on your own. In him, we have a confident assurance. Let me add to that. Our inheritance also includes a perfect wisdom. Perfect wisdom. Verse 11, Paul says that our sovereign God, that he works all things, you see it, all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. The word works actually means that he actively brings to pass. That's what it means. Now, let's talk about the what. What does he actively bring to pass? What does it say? 
all things. That's what it says, right? Come on, shake your head. You might not like it, but it's what it says, right? He works all things to the counsel of his will. Let me confess to you that that is hard for me. It's hard for us. And I understand. Because sometimes the mess out there really troubles my soul. All things? The mess, God? Is that part of this thing? To include the mess into all things is confusing and we don't understand how. And, and this is not meant to be flippant. I'm okay with that. And I would suggest to you that God is okay with your confusion too. He's not frustrated by you going, I don't get it. He knows you don't get it. He knows that. In fact, in our lifetime, many of you could preach this sermon better than I could. In, in your lifetime, sometimes, but rarely, sometimes you can see some particular trouble and you can see how it turns out. And you can conclude after it's all said and done, oh, look what God was doing. Look at X and Y and Z. Look at him and her and them. Look at all this stuff that God was doing. And clearly this trouble came and God did good out of the trouble. That does happen, but it's super duper rare. It's super rare that you get all done with these stories of trouble and mess and go, oh, I, I get it. God is not obligated to reveal to us all the intentions of his will. Many times we don't know how this thing's gonna end or these stories are gonna fit together for good. So let me just tease you with some questions. So I know that troubles us. So what's our options? All things, all things under the counsel of his will or to believe that God isn't sovereign over all things to believe that something or someone out there frustrates God. Is that an option? To believe that someone is greater or to believe that he's not good? Is that an option? I think in spite of our not knowing how it will all work out for God's glory and our good, as scary as that is to not know, it's so much more scary to believe that something wasn't under his control. Really? There's a maverick out there somewhere who's giving God a problem. That's a scary place to be. I know, I get this, I feel the same way. I wanna understand how the mess is all a part of his plan. But if you and I really understood how the mess was a part of his plan, you and I would be God. He knows, and he's good, and that's enough. Paul said, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is one theologian's thought on this topic. His will may be disobeyed, and that may frustrate us, but his ultimate purpose cannot be frustrated. For he overrules the disobedience of his creatures in such a way that it is subordinate to his purposes. Example, Acts chapter four, the apostles in their praise and prayer acknowledge before God that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the other enemies of Jesus conspired together all unwittingly to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. Example one. And over and over again, it happens. In him, church, we have an inheritance of faith in a sovereign God who, according to Paul, works all things together to the counsel of his will. An inheritance, that truth, that wisdom is ours. We rest in who? Him. 
Paul didn't say this to make it trouble. He said it to give you an explanation for the mess. You don't know. I don't know. I have no idea how sickness, death, and harm, and misery, and people hurting each other has any part of his sovereignty. He knows. He knows what he's doing. And according to Paul, the way he finishes his long run on sentence, the last five words of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Where is he going? Where is he going as always? To get glory. To go on display. To have a better plan than you and I. To know more than you and I. To work all things together for all of his good plans. Here's a paraphrase. Listen to this and we're done. Have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant jealousy or generosity of God? This is Romans 11, by the way. This deep, deep wisdom. It's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. Is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? Anyone who has done him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice? (laughs) Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory, always praise. Yes, yes, and yes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess our limitations, but we praise your power in your goodness. In this passage, Paul is is laying out for us the amazing blessings, the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus, and it is overwhelming. But even as we unpack what you have provided and who you are, it still creates some old feelings in us, questions in us. I pray, God, that we just rest in you. There is no way to have perfect answers to all things, but to trust that you do is enough. We praise your name today. We thank you for Christ our Savior and what is ours in him, we pray in Christ's name, amen.